Welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough, and with me is Dr. Jim Cosgrove. Dr. Cosgrove is the chairman of Obstetrics and Gynecology at St. Francis Hospital, also a member of the admissions committee at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. We'll talk a little about medical education as well. But first, Dr. Cosgrove, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Brian. You know, when people talk about primary care, they talk about family medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics, and OBGYN. And a lot of people may not think of OBGYN as a primary care field, but it really is. I mean, obviously, you do surgical procedures and other uh, intensive type things, but you're also on the front lines every day seeing patients. Sure. I think that, uh, of course, OBGYN spend a lot of time actually physically delivering babies, and we spend a lot of time in the operating room. Uh, but a fair amount of our time is actually spent in the office. And in that office, we do everything from routine pap smears to diagnosing uh, cancers to abnormal bleeding and a host of other uh, conditions, including birth control, uh, things that actually our family practice colleagues actually provide also. We know we have a lot of physicians all over the world listening to this program, and when you think about health care and the changes that are occurring and what's being done, depending on what part of the country you're in, um, OB has been hit in different ways. I mean, I remember at one point the malpractice crisis, it was a major issue. You couldn't even find an obstetrician gynecologist in many major cities. Sure. There were specific, actually, states involved. Um, I'm practicing in Wilmington, Delaware, and at the time Pennsylvania had just outrageous malpractice premiums. I had obstetricians calling me up who didn't even know me, asking me if they could come down and work with me in Wilmington, Delaware, just because the, uh, of the outrageous uh, malpractice premiums that they had to face. When you look at OBGYN as a specialty and its link to primary care and family practice docs, what do you see as the greatest way that an obstetrician can um, help in the care of their patients, um, you know, as far as long-term? And are there certain things you diagnose early and, and you help with? Well, I, I think that probably the the one thing that we provide as obstetrician gynecologists is cancer prevention and screening programs for that. Um, I think that working with our family practice colleagues, you know, I find it you know important for us in our practice to always do simple things like copy our family practice colleagues on pap smears that we do, or if we take someone to surgery to make sure that the family practitioner is copied on the operative reports and the pathology reports to keep that continuum between the two to two groups. Uh, on the other hand, I think that um, there's a lot of opportunity to enhance women's health care in general. For example, if I have someone come into my office that you know, their blood pressure is elevated, you know, I'm not necessarily going to treat that, but I'm kind of a first line, and I'll actually recommend them to go back to their family practitioner uh, to get follow-up for those things. When someone gets pregnant, and we've talked about this a lot with other physicians and other programs, when someone gets pregnant and they develop diabetes during pregnancy or they develop hypertension during pregnancy, often that's a window on what can happen later in life. In some studies, it's shown it actually can predict diabetes or hypertension as a problem down the road. Sure. Somebody that's a gestational diabetic, um, you know, we know that that diabetes is caused by the human placenta lactogen. That's a hormone secreted by the placenta. And when the placenta is delivered, their diabetes will abate. Uh, we have patients that can be on massive amounts of insulin to control their diabetes during pregnancy. And once the placenta is delivered, the next day they're perfectly normal. However, there's about a 50% conversion rate that those folks by the age of 50 
uh, will be uh, type 2 diabetics. So that's important for our uh, family practice colleagues to know and uh, to you know, keep them informed that, that they have uh, gestational diabetes. And the same thing with hypertension. You know, we can have, you know, everyone is familiar with preeclampsia, but we can have chronic hypertension that comes into our office that's never been treated and then have superimposed preeclampsia on top of that. After the delivery, the preeclampsia, of course, resolves, but the chronic hypertension doesn't. And after a six-week postpartum period, we certainly would refer those folks back to their family practice doctor for treatment of their hypertension. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, your host. I'm speaking with Dr. Jim Cosgrove. And Dr. Cosgrove, I did mention at the top we were going to talk a little about medical education. And you see people early on, actually you also train them during residency as well, but early on when they're coming out of college, those of us, uh, we all went down that path at a certain point where we're nervous applying to medical school and going through that process. Being involved on an admissions committee, being involved in that process, what do you look for um, in today's world? What are we looking for for doctors? And what are you trying to get to try to get the best doctors for down the road? Well, you know, there's certain basic skills. You know, we certainly, without denying, we look at grade point averages. We look at uh, MCAT scores. But at Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, I, we take a pride in our interviewing process. And what we really look for is we look for somebody that's a, a very well-rounded individual, we like folks that have had shadow doctors. Uh, we like folks that really have done something that's a little bit unorthodox. Uh, for example, if we have two candidates and one may have gone right onto a master's degree program and another person played in a rock band or was a waitress for two years, we'll tend to take the rock band player or the waitress because they have life experiences that's outside of the academic uh, arena. So really what we look for uh, in our admissions process is really diversity, not just in race and color and uh, religion and et cetera, et cetera, but we actually look for diversity in life skills. You know, many companies, I think, are looking at that, too. Just across the board, they may want a history major or they may want a political science or an English major rather than necessarily a business major going into business. I think because they're essentially looking at diverse approaches to things and life experiences. Um, I know in my experience, just dealing with physicians, you get to a certain point where you can't really tell who was a great student, nor is it that important if they were a great student if you see them under pressure, performing well, and you know, relating well to their patients. I, I agree with you. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I always remember one of our, uh, John Similaro, my pulmonology professor at uh, PCOM, uh, said to us once as we were preparing for a test, he said, you know, your real test is in the emergency room. And if someone comes in that can't breathe and you help them, then you get an A. And if you don't help them, you didn't do so well. So I, I think the whole movement in both allopathic and osteopathic uh, medical schools these days is, you know, the MEMCATs are changing their emphasis from more less of a science basis to more of a social basis. And I think that all of the schools are actually looking for people that are more people-oriented and maybe a little bit less scientific. You know, when you look at the science of this and you look at the people orientation of it, and it is really an exact science, when you look at medicine over the next 20, 30 years, what do you see? I mean, what do you see as changes? I know, for instance, as we go to electronic records, there's more and more of people looking algorithms or set pathways and things. What do you think is going to happen with physicians, and do you see good, do you see bad? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. What I see, uh, Dr. McDonough, is when we had to interview our candidates for medical school, you know, the one question that we ask is, why do you want to become a doctor? And the answer probably that you gave and that I gave years and years ago and still the answer today is, quote, I want to help people. And that's still a powerful statement. And I think as we go down the road, you know, what do I think as far as medicines? I think we're going to see a lot of ancillary help, a lot of nurse practitioners, midwives, uh, you know, ancillary folks helping out in, in medicine. But I think the fundamental rule or the fundamental basis for medicine is still going to be, I want to help people. What do you see about the role or growing role of business in medicine where insurance companies, uh, hospitals, they seem to be aligning, uh, they're aligning with physicians, there are a lot of changes. How do you see that impacting things? Well, I think it's a double-edged sword. I I think it's one is we have to face the realities of medicine and the cost of medicine, the escalating cost of medicine. And on the other hand, I think that we still need to remember that we're there to take care of patients, and that's our primary goal. The days of where we let the insurance companies just go ahead and do what they do and we're just going to take care of patients, I think those days are over. Many, many physicians, I think, including yourself, have graduate degrees in business. Uh, so we're, we're tying that in more, not for the business aspect, but I think more so that your physicians can actually understand the business of medicine as opposed to just the altruistic benefits from being a physician. Are there things you see happening in the next, you know, again, five, ten years, let's say, where, where we're going to be providing better care in the area of OBGYN? Any major advances on the horizon? Uh, continue doing things the way we are uh, from your perspective? I think in OBGYN specifically, we're going to see uh, great strides in the treatment of preterm labor and delivery. Um, recently, over the last five years or so, the uh, 17 alpha hydroxyprogesterone injections that we give to women that have a history of preterm labor and delivery. We inject them once a week from 16 weeks up to 36 weeks. Uh, has drastically decreased the number of preterm labor and deliveries. Um, in OB2N specifically, I think we're going to see clearly an advance in uh, prenatal diagnosis of genetic defects without a doubt. And I think more intrauterine surgery is going to take place that's going to be diagnosed by the obstetrician-gynecologist, but then, of course, refer to tertiary centers for care. So you'll see a lot more intrauterine uh, repair. Uh, For example, like spina bifida right now can can be done as an intrauterine procedure. I think we're going to see more and more of those types of procedures. We talk about the importance of prenatal care, and clearly everybody in primary care is aware of it, but, you know, not just the prenatal care, but when people are thinking of becoming pregnant, starting to eat healthy and do different things, take different steps, what are those steps you recommend uh, for family docs out there? I I think that's a great question, and I think this is really something that's uh, germane to the family practitioner. Uh, Folks come to our office, really not, they come to us pregnant. Uh, rarely do they come to us and say, hey, you know what, Doc, I think maybe next year I'm going to have a baby or whatever. Uh, but I think the family pract- practitioners, they see their patients, and they may be the first line where a woman says, you know, I'm anticipating a pregnancy. What should I do or what shouldn't I do? Probably every uh, woman menstruating should be on a prenatal vitamin to begin with. Secondly, I think that everyone contemplating pregnancy should be on a vitamin that contains folic acid, at least a milligram a day, for over a year before they get pregnant. Uh, This has been proven to reduce the risk of spina bifida significantly. 
Uh, thirdly, these patients should be counseled by their family practice doctor about decreased alcohol, drug use, of course, smoking, and even just over-the-counter drugs. The rule of thumb is, you know, no drugs, no smoking, no alcohol, and to maintain a good weight and healthy diet probably a year before the pregnancy actually occurs. So when you do all of those things and you, and you try to work with people, it can make a big difference. And I think we all like to hold our hat and hang our hat on, but at the same time, uh, it can get away from you. You may not be thinking about you're pregnant, rushing through a six-minute visit or a seven-minute visit, as so many people do. They don't maybe ask that question, but I think it's crucial to discuss that, especially if, if someone is, is contemplating that. What about risks uh, for young women uh, that you see? Uh, do you pick up things, you know, concerns about anorexia, bulimia, those types of things? Are they, are they in your practice to any extent? Sure. You know, one of the tip-offs for us is someone that comes in with, with a woman that has amenorrhea or, you know, no periods. And um, one of the things we always uh, question them about is anorexia or bulimia. Uh, we, we see that fairly often. Um, I think that the family practice folks that are taking a history and find out that their ladies aren't having periods or, or, or you know, uh, underweight, et cetera, should probably investigate that. Probably one of the things I think through the guidance of the American College of OBGYN, one of the uh, points that they really stress now and that really has come to the surface is that every patient that comes into our office, we ask them about sexual abuse or domestic violence. Uh, if they answer positive to both of those things, especially domestic violence, then we're obligated to report that and and to get them help. But I think that's probably one of the most areas that has the most foresight into helping women, uh, you know, in their everyday life. And you think about it, you know, just a few years ago, that was a question that really didn't come up that often or people weren't thinking about. And, you you know, you wonder why we didn't focus on it. But you're right. I think that's a very, very important point. And uh, I can tell you through my residency training that never, and I mean never, was an issue. Every once in a while, maybe the sexual abuse would come up, especially with folks that had dyspareunia or some other kind of painful uh, sexual experience. You might delve back into their past and ask them if there was anything, but that was very, very rare that that happened. Today, it's uh, one of the benefits, I think, of being in more of an open society that you actually sit there and say to a woman while you're having painful intercourse, you know, is there anything in your past that you can think of that may have affected you psychologically that, that resulted from a sexual experience? So it's it's kind of uh, a nice thing in a way that we can be more open and transparent with our patients uh, than we were 20 years ago. Well, Dr. Jim Cosgrove, we run out of time. I want to thank you for joining and sharing your insights on primary care today. It was a real pleasure having you with us. Thank you very much, Dr. McDonough, and uh, glad to speak with you. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed any part of this discussion, Please visit ReachMD.com slash Primary Care Today to download the podcast and learn more about this series. Thank you again for listening. Until next time, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough.